welcome to the Canine Conservationists podcast, where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us every week to discuss detection training, canine welfare, conservation biology, and everything in between. I'm Kayla Fratt, a co-founder of Canine Conservationists, where we train dogs to detect data for land managers, researchers, agencies, NGOs, and just about anyone else who needs conservation detection dogs. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking to Chris Hartnett, the Zoos Victoria Threatened Species Program Coordinator, about working with dogs to find bob-off frogs. Working closely with a range of conservation partners, Chris has led the strategic planning and implementation for Zoos Victoria's Detection Dog Program since 2016. I'm super excited to get to this interview, but as always, before we get into it, we're going to dive into our science highlight. This week, our summary was provided by our lovely volunteer, Heidi Benson, and we're reading the article titled Obedience Training Effects on Search Dog Performance, which was published in Applied Animal Behavior Science in April 2011 by Michael Ben Alexander head friend and lawyer, Laura Hogg. And the question was, do obedience and agility training methods have an effect on search dog performance? The authors start off by highlighting the importance of working dogs having a solid obedience foundation and note that previous studies regarding search dogs have failed to investigate how obedience training methods impact search dog performance. In order to address this gap in knowledge, the authors solicited self-reported surveys from 177 dog handlers via the National Search Dog Alliance's website in 2007 and 2008. The surveys included questions on handler demographics, credentials, and experience. Most respondents were between 36 and 55 years old, though there was no association between handler age and dog performance. 68% of respondents were women, and gender was found to be significantly associated with obedience training methods, with positive methods being more commonly associated with women than men. 58% of handlers had achieved state or national level certifications with their dog, and certification was not associated with previous training experience, search and rescue, or otherwise. Overall, respondents had less experience with search and rescue than they did with dog training, leading the authors to conclude that SAR dog training may have a high dropout rate. The survey also included questionnaires on the age at which handlers started training obedience and agility with their dogs and the training tools utilized. Training tools were classified as either passive, which included no tools, buckle buckle collars, harnesses, and front pull harnesses, or active, which included head halters, slip leads, pinch collars, and electronic collars. Obedience was started by 72% of handlers before the age of 12 weeks, whereas agility training tended to be started later, with 67% of handlers starting agility between three months and two years of age. There was a strong association between increasing age of the dog and use of active equipment, which the authors attribute to the increasing size and strength of the dog as it ages. Finally, respondents were asked about training methods and time spent training. Handlers who spent more than four hours training per week were more likely to achieve a national certification, and 72% of handlers with a national certification preferred positive training methods, while 28% preferred compulsive methods. In closing, the authors note that further research on the effects of handler experience, the reason for failure of search dogs, and how early puppy enrichment and training might be utilized to decrease failure and increase the reliability of search dogs would be useful. So the study did rely heavily on self-reported data, which may introduce bias or lack validity. Not all dogs were certified, and those that were had been certified in varying disciplines, 18 separate credentialing agencies, allowing for potential differences in certifying standards. Not all groups and disciplines were represented equally. For example, women were represented at a higher rate than men. 34% of respondents trained their dogs in wilderness search area, while 0% were trained in avalanche, etc. And then Heidi noted that it's not 100% clear to her why they were interested in agility training. And I'm also interested in um, how they defined agility. I don't know if they mean formal 
agility like what they do in a competition or more of kind of like strength, fitness, rubble pile sorts of conditioning work. Um, and then it is also interesting that the authors attribute um, the increased use of active tools as dogs got older to the dogs being larger and physically stronger and ignored the possibility that this might be due at least in part to changes in cognitive processes as the dog matures or um, kind of training uh, practices. You know, even people who are more balanced don't tend to put these tools on young puppies in general. Um, It also could be due to, you know, as Heidi kind of hinted here, the dogs um, changing over time and Um, the authors or the uh, trainers feeling the need to use these tools. And finally, it could also be that um, maybe an e-collar is only introduced at the point where the dog is doing larger wilderness search areas. So that just simply wouldn't be necessary until the dog is up to the point of doing that sort of work, which may not happen until the dog is a year or two old or even longer potentially. So anyway, um, great article. Again, you can find that over in Applied Animal Behavior Science. Um, And without further ado, let's get to the interview with Chris Hartnett. All right. So last thing before we get to the interview, I do want to let everyone at home know that I am recording from outdoors at a hostel in El Salvador, just like the episode you heard with Tony. So if you're hearing any background noise, unfortunately, that are that could be some compression breaks or there is a 13-year-old child running around on an ATV. Um, hopefully we'll get more of the jungle and less of that, but I do apologize for the sound quality. Without further ado, Chris, um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Welcome. Hi, Kayla. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're thrilled to have you here. So why don't we start off with just tell us about these Baba frogs and what risks they're facing. Tell me tell me a little bit more about them because I actually, I don't even know what they look like. Tell me about them. Sure. So the Baba frog is, it's not charismatic to look at, but we adore them. They're quite a small frog, um, quite sort of muddy coloured so that they blend in with their their environment. Um, They are endemic to a very small region here in Victoria, Australia. So they're endemic, which means only found um, on the Borbor Plateau at Mount Borbor. So they are an alpine species uh, and they do spend quite a bit of their time burrowing down in in mud and leaf litter. Um, So really one of those species that's very cryptic um, and critically endangered. So we've been keeping an eye on them. They are one of our Zoos Victoria Fighting Extinction 27 species. So we pour a lot of effort, resources to actually making sure that that species does not go over into the brink of extinction. Yeah, definitely. Well, and we uh, we talk a lot about charismatic minifauna on this lab, which is a, a term that I think Dr. Areem Gomez more or less coined. And uh, we definitely put frogs in that category, um, frogs and bats and all of our other uh, little guys. Um, yeah, so they um, if they're spending a lot yeah, of time burrowing and leaf litter. brown things. No, exactly. All the little brown things. Um, so... It does sound like they could potentially be quite challenging to find if they're spending a lot of time buried under leaf litter. Can you um, give us a little bit of an idea? So you said they're in this Mount Baba region. About how big is that? What was What is the population looking like or maybe what the population is like kind of last time you got a good count on them or a good estimate? Sure. So um, as I mentioned, they are quite difficult to survey. They are a very cryptic species. The estimate is that there are less than 250 individuals in the wild. Um, They are subject to threats which, you know, particularly a threat which um, is is putting amphibian species at risk globally, which is amphibian chytrid fungus. So we we have seen a drastic reduction in the numbers of these frogs, um, particularly because they are only found 
in that small region, we don't have, I guess, the luxury of additional populations. Um, we are focusing very strongly on that that sole existing population, and as I said, really small numbers. Um, and, and we are undertaking recovery actions such as captive breeding to build up the population size, and that involves breeding here um, at Zoo Victoria, and then um, structured release programs where we're, we're reintroducing um, adult frogs as well as tadpoles and eggs uh, into the wild to try to build up that, that population. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, 250 is not, um, not the sort of number we like to see for populations generally. A population of only 250 individuals or so, but also with a downward trajectory. So, you know, um, mm. year on year, our survey efforts are showing reductions in that, in that number. Yeah. So um, tell us a little bit about um, prior to dogs, because as our listeners probably have already figured out, we're, we're angling towards the fact that you are starting to use or have been using detection dogs to work with these blah, blah frogs. What survey techniques were being used to try to try to find these find these blah, blah frogs, get a, a good head count on them or, you know, as good as one can do? Yeah, sure. So because the species is not highly visible, our researchers were relying on um, the calling of the male frogs um, to actually detect where they are. Mm -hmm. So essentially during breeding season, it's only a very limited window from October to November, the adult males will call. And so during population monitoring, the researchers were literally keeping an ear out for that calling uh, and then they would sort of have to dig down um, in sort of boulder stacks and, and leaf litter to see if they could actually find the individual that was calling. So a really laborious um, process and so definitely one that was calling out for some improvement or another tool that could be used to, to detect these frogs. And that's where yeah. the detection dogs we're hoping are going to make a big difference because if you're not just relying on the calling of adult males to find individuals, um, you know, the dogs, if they're, if they're using scent, um, theoretically should be able to find four-bore frogs of, of any gender and any age profile. So it's, it's sort of not that reliance on that small window of opportunity when the males are calling. Yeah, well, and I, as I can imagine, um, doing these these auditory surveys, you're super limited in a bunch of different ways. But um, you know, not all not all species tend to have the same number of males and females in them at any given point in time. I don't know whether or not that's true for bawbaws, but regardless, you're you're only at best you're only going to be catching fifty percent. So tell us a little bit about um, what sparked the idea of trying out conservation dogs and. Um, Maybe tell us about the early days of starting to get the the dog side of this project up and running. Sure. So I guess it's it's not an idea that's original to us. Um, prior to us embarking on on having a detection dog program here at Zoos Victoria, we did a literature review. We looked at the the global. Um, literature around working with dogs on various taxa and we saw that you know throughout the world dogs have been using conservation really successfully mostly with with mammals but there were some instances of reptiles and frogs and we were particularly interested in that because we do have um, quite a few reptiles and frogs on our fighting extinction list um, so we initially had a proof of concept phase for this program 
We worked with an independent contractor and his dogs. He had some border collies. And we chose a couple of species from our fighting extinction list, um, one of which was the boar frog, to really test whether this could be done. Um, and whilst we obviously did ha have all of that supporting literature and global work, we wanted to make sure that it could be done within the parameters that we work within. So in the very particular and challenging environment of, of Mount Borbor, for example, with a highly cryptic species that does burrow up to 30 centimetres down under the, under the ground. Um, so we really set a challenge for this contractor and his dogs. Um, and the results from that proof of concept phase were exciting, um, were positive. The dogs actually, um, after being trained uh, using uh, skin swabs and some exposure to live frogs at Melbourne Zoo, the dogs were able to detect bore frogs uh, in their, their natural environment. And so we used the learnings from that and, and the sort of impetus that we gained from doing that proof of concept study um, to, to frame the, the program that we now have launched here at Zoos Victoria, which is based at Healesville Sanctuary. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was a really important first step to before we kind of went headlong into having our own program we had that, that test phase, if you like, um, to see if this could work um, using the methodology that we're comfortable with, particularly around welfare, both of the dogs and, um, and of the target species, the threatened wildlife that we're working with. And those results were, were really promising. And here we are now with our own in-house program, our own team of trainers, handlers and detection dogs, and you know, going back to Mount Borbor uh, to further that training with this species. Yeah, that's really exciting. And um, I mean, it seems like a really, a really logical way to go about it, you know, starting with someone who is experienced and can can do the experiment, do the pilot as a subcontractor before diving in headfirst with your own um, on staff team. So tell us a little bit, um, particularly about working with these dogs with a very small live animal, what were some of the big considerations? Because I, I, I'm sure you, you all were very careful about ensuring that um, training and dog selection and protocols helped keep the the dog the well the frogs mostly um, safe. That is something that uh, we haven't spent a lot of time talking about on this show for live live find in particular. Yeah, and it's obviously something that we try to communicate as much as we can that these dogs are not your average dogs. You know, they're they're highly trained. They are specially selected. We need to make sure that they're going to be safe around wildlife, and not just the the wildlife that they've been trained to detect, but anything else that they may have come across. You know, we have kangaroos that regularly move through the environment, and you know, they're big and they're mobile and um, certainly distracting, um, as just one example. So yeah, a lot of effort goes into making sure that the dogs actually don't pay a lot of attention to um, to any wildlife that they may come across, that they focus on the job of detecting their target odour. Um, and, you know, that just that comes with time and patience and adapting your training methodology to the individual dog. Um, and obviously you have that, that key focus of, of welfare and, and safety, but you have to adapt your methods um, for the challenges that each dog presents. So we work with a lot of partners in our recovery programs for threatened species. And, you know, some of these um, agencies, including ourselves, have been working on these species for, for several years and they do have survey methodologies that have been successful. So we select our target species based on whether there, where there may be gaps that the dogs can help us address. 
And we see the dogs as another conservation tool. So are they going to be appropriate for any given species? What are those gaps? Will the dogs help us address those gaps? And then we work with our partners to ensure that everyone's comfortable uh, with using detection dogs. Um, and so when you've already done that groundwork, you're really setting yourself up for, for more success. Yeah, absolutely. No, that makes perfect sense. Canine Conservationists offers several on-demand webinars to help you and your dog go along in your journey as a conservation dog team. Our current on-demand webinars are all roughly one hour long and priced at $25. They include Puppy Scent Work, all about raising and training a conservation puppy, Found It, Alerts and Changes of Behavior, and What You Looking For, Teaching Your Dog a Target Odor. Find these three webinars along with jackets, treat pouches, mugs, bento boxes, and more over at our website, canineconservationists.org slash shop. Tell us about the early days of working with the dogs. Was there anything that surprised or challenged you and, um, and the subcontractor just as a, as a team? Uh, it sounds like the detectability went well, but was that a, was that a smooth road or did you hit any, any interesting hiccups along the way? Sure. So uh, with Borbor frogs, it, what actually surprised me is how quick the progression was for the dogs. They started out with, um, you know, sort of cotton swabs that had been um, rubbed on the skin of Borbor frogs at Melbourne Zoo. Um, and then the dogs were training on those for a while. And then we set up a protocol where um, the, the frogs could be safely contained. And, and this is all under ethics approval. Um, and then the dogs could actually sniff the containers with the, with the frogs in them. And I was just so surprised at how quickly the dogs were able to leap from, you know, the skin swabs to the scent of the live frogs and then to success in the field for bore frogs. I really thought that was going to be the more difficult species. We did actually, within that proof of concept, um, have the critically endangered plains wanderer, which is a mostly ground-dwelling grassland bird, um, and we thought, uh, well, out of out of a frog that burrows and a grassland bird, obviously the dogs would be able to locate the bird uh, more easily. But that presented some really unique challenges, and particularly with um, a species that is very rare, it was the difficulty in providing um, enough individuals so that the dogs could really get a solid scent picture. Um, and that's always a challenge for us with with the the target species we have. They are all threatened. They're mostly critically endangered in terms of their, their status. So finding samples is probably the most challenging aspect of what we do. Uh, so, you know, we got further with the Borbor frog work than we did with the Plains Wanderer work, purely because of a lack of opportunity, not wanting to expose any individual bird to, um, you know, that, that sniffing um, element of the training for too long um, or too frequently. So that's that's a work in progress and something that we will keep going with um, now that we have our in-house program. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. So do these um, do these birds kind of co-occur with the Baba frogs? So is this something that you were hoping you could have the dogs go out and work with both species at the same time and uh, kind of get a two for one with the surveys? Or what was the thinking with cross-training the dogs on on those birds as well? Uh, so very different environments um, and each with their own challenges. Um, and we would um, yeah, have potentially 
two different dogs, you know, or, or a couple of dogs that um, are sort of more I specialist see. in that alpine environment um, and then a different dog for the grassland environment. And we do work with a number of grassland species, so it may be that we sort of um, bunch those together um, based on, on that similarity of habitat. But in terms of, yeah, Plains Wanderer and Bobo Frog, very different, um, very different environments. And we selected those two species because there were those gaps in, in the survey methodology that we thought dogs could help with. I see. I see. Yeah, and I suppose if you say that the Baba frogs are found on a mountain and the Plains Wanderer has a name of the Plains Wanderer, that makes sense that they're not in the same place. <laughs> uh, just showing my, my lack of understanding of the Australian continent. It's a good question, though, around, around the grouping of the species um, that we have as our target species and, and selecting dogs to work on those different species as well. Yeah, I know that's something that Heath Smith of Rogue Detection is a big proponent of, and it's something we think about a lot, especially when you're working with um, animals that, or targets that might be extremely low find for the dogs, um, or hard to confirm is, you know, is there something else that could be of conservation or ecological interest to cross train the dogs on? Um, so that was where my mind went before actually kicking into gear, thinking about um, the names of the animals and whether or not they are likely to be in the same place. Yeah, absolutely. It's a big consideration when you think that there's there's potentially going to be a lot of survey effort for the dog um, without a lot of reward and we really have to manage their motivation to keep working and make sure that they're enjoying it um, and, you know, they, they want to have a little party and celebrate when they find their target. So, yeah, definitely something that we have in mind when we're working with threatened species and, and just really how to manage that. So tell us a little bit, um, how have the dogs impacted the project so far? It sounds like it's still in the early days, but um, what have, if anything, have you seen so far? And if there's, there's nothing so far, tell us a little bit about what your, your hopes and dreams and expectations are with this project. The recent trip to Mount Borbor where the amphibian team were releasing individuals that had been um, bred in captivity at uh, Melbourne Zoo was a really great opportunity for the detection dog team to bring the dogs up, um, further exposure to that really challenging environment and also an opportunity when the researchers were releasing frogs and under very controlled conditions, the dogs were able to have a sniff of each individual that was being released. So that's a massive opportunity for them to help really put that puzzle together in their minds of what they're looking for, um, really getting enough exposure to that scent so that they can get that profile really, really fixed in their mind and then they will be able to find it again in future. So like I was saying before, it's one of our challenges, um, getting enough sample material for the dogs to train on. This was a perfect opportunity. Um, we knew where the, where the frogs um, were going to be released um, and then it was just a matter of, um, you know, releasing, giving the, giving the dogs an opportunity to smell the individual, taking the dog away so that it can't use its, its visual skills to see where the frogs are and then um, they would release a frog and then the dog would be brought in to see if it could locate where that frog was. Um, a really funny, I guess, observation was that they were marking their release location with pink flagging tape. And one of our dogs, Kip, he's a very clever and experienced boy. Um, he pretty much straight away, we, you know, we realised he was actually using that pink flagging tape as a cue um, oh, no. for locating the frog. <laughs> so, you know, mm -hmm. that was that was a learning opportunity for us and something that, you know, you would think that um, you might up straight away but it's just a technique that's often used in the field where we use flagging tape for you know for location all the time mm -hmm. so um 
yes, it didn't take as long to realise that, that Kip was using that as his cue um, because it's you know, just too easy. So oh, yeah. Yeah, had, to, yeah. had to change that, <laughs> that approach yep. so that Kip could use his nose. And, yeah, yeah, we, yeah, we got they're... great results. So um, Kip particularly, again, because he's so experienced, um, the other dog that we're training, Finn, is a younger dog, um, but Kip came to the program with a lot of um, conservation detection work under his belt already. Um, so, yeah, he's he's progressing really, really well on this species and was able to locate individuals post-release. Where if you have the opportunity to not just give the dogs a, a quick reward um, while you're about to release the frogs, but then also give them this micro search that's much more realistic, but still should be a little bit easier than being in the field. Uh, I mean, what a what a beautiful opportunity and a great way to give the, the dogs that um, kind of next step up in training. I know that's something as we're we're getting ready to head into the Guatemalan jungle for our next project. Our dogs have been getting trained on pretty heavily dehydrated scats for the last month or two. And um, I'm very excited to hopefully be able to get on the ground and um, get them out and find some known samples of fresh scat because in uh, kind of the lowlands of the Guatemala rainforest, it's the scats are going to be very far from dehydrated and I'm, uh, I'm very excited mm. to be able to get the dogs some quick hits and um, rewards for for that. Um, it's just something that's so important as you're moving the dogs from those early stages of training into more field readiness. So what are some of the things that you're excited to see next with the dogs and the Bawbaws or some of these other projects that you're exploring um, for, for the dog program? With Bawbaw frogs, it's so exciting that we will potentially have a method for tracking how well those individuals are doing once we release them um, from their captive bred environment into the wild. Uh, you know, it's a hugely important part of translocations that we can then follow up, follow those individuals. Are they surviving? Are they thriving? Are they breeding? Um, so, and also how far are they moving from their release locations? All of these pieces of information that are going to help us plan the management of the species, track their progress and, and, you know, sort of make sure that the recovery actions that we're undertaking are making a difference. And this is information that has been really hard to obtain, not just for bore bore frogs, but pretty much for any threatened species that we may be um, releasing from captivity into the wild and that's a big part of what we do it's it's one of our fields of specialization at zoos victoria is conservation captive breeding and then obviously a big part of that is to be able to follow up on the individuals that you release so dogs could have a crucial role to play in that uh, we try all sorts of technology um, and some of it's really expensive and it's imperfect it's not small enough how do we attach it that type of thing and dogs just seem to be such a natural fit for this kind of work you know they do this naturally with the right training um, i think they could surpass a lot of the technology um, and also another role that i see as critically important is finding individuals that are suitable for bringing into our captive breeding programs because we need to manage the genetics of these small captive populations um, and sort of be cycling new genetics in, new founders, and so the dogs could help us find individuals to do that, and that's such an important contribution um, to the recovery of a lot of these species. 
Absolutely. Okay. That makes, that makes perfect sense. So, and I don't know whether or not you're um, ready to share this sort of information and it's absolutely okay if not. So would the idea be then to have the dogs going out into the field, um, alerting to an area and then having um, trained scientists going out and actually taking the frogs um, and getting them in hand to be able to assess health um, and potentially take samples to decide whether or not they've got the right genetic diversity to bring into the program, to double check if they're an individual that you all had bred and released. Um, kind of what, what is the process on the non-dog end of, the, of the, the equation for those sorts of questions and goals? It's a real team effort. Um, so the dogs are working closely, obviously, with their trainer handlers, but also with the um, the expert biologists that we have um, working with us. So it's crucial that those people are on board with detection dogs as, as a survey methodology. And in the case of Borbor Frog, we've had such a fantastic relationship um, with the amphibian experts that work here at Zoos Victoria, but also with other agencies that we work with. Um, they've been really excited about the possibilities um, for working with dogs on this species. And, you know, coming up with a list of things that the dogs could help with, which really helps inform our work. You know, we always consult with the species biologist to find out um, what path to take. So, yeah, definitely a close relationship there and a lot of support. The dogs ideally would be taken up for um, Borbor frogs to Mount Borbor to the plateau. They would be helping locate individuals and then the team of amphibian experts would be standing right there basically to um, provide confirmation that the dogs have found a Borbor frog. Um, <laughs> you know, it's interesting with a, with a cryptic, cryptic species, um, to some extent, you have to trust the dog. Um, when they're telling you it's there, you have to, you know, if you're, if you're certain that you've gone through all the prior steps in the training, um, that they are actually telling you that there's a bauble frog there. But what we obviously do is um, we have the, the, the specialists there who uh, know how to handle these frogs, know the environment, because you don't want to create a lot of disturbance when you're you're digging to find the frogs. Um, that is habitat that's crucial, so, you know, not turning over rocks or if you do need to, to move anything, you put it right back where it was. Um, and we rely on that expertise to then confirm that a frog has been found. And then depending on, on you know, the application at the time, the uh, priority at the time, uh, they may collect individuals to bring into captive breeding or it may just be about monitoring um, the health, for example, of, of individuals and um, therefore getting a better sense of the health of the population. As you mentioned earlier, um, a lot of species can, um, for whatever reason, end up with a gender bias. So that's really important information for us to have as well. Um, different conditions can can lead to a population being out of balance in that regard. Um, so just all of these these pieces of information are coming together and we hope that dogs are going to be able to really contribute to that um, in tandem with, with the human specialists. Yes, thank you so much for sharing that. And I love the intricacies of how the dogs are really just part of a team. And that's something that we really try to emphasize on this show is it's not just about the dogs and what they're able to sniff out um, and being out in the field, but actually involving the dogs as part of these larger scientific questions and really bringing in the why of what we're doing this. I think a lot of times when people first hear about the field of conservation detection dogs, you know, their first thought is, oh my gosh, how great would it be to get paid to hike with my dog? And A, of course the job is so much more than that. And sometimes it's nowhere near as fun as that sounds. And B, I think the people who 
I see tending to last in this field and the people who are really successful and are able to deal with um, the handler lifestyle tend to be people who are really excited about um, the outcome of this methodology and what the dogs are actually contributing to. And often to me, what is the most inspiring or interesting part of this work is not at all the dogs, but actually what's happening as soon as the dog has found something. Um, so yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. And there's just so much that you all are doing in this project. It's so, so interesting. So do you have any favorite, um, interesting, funny, cool, um, or maybe frustrating stories that you would like to share from the training or the field, um, the early stages of implementation that you'd be willing to share with us all? So the training side of things, I'm sure that our um, wildlife detection dog officers would have plenty of stories to tell you. It's not something that I'm as involved in. I'm sort of more involved in the uh, the oversight and the management and the coordination of the program. Um, but I was certainly very present in that proof of concept phase um, and, you know, heading out into the field with um, the wonderful contractor, Luke, and his two beautiful dogs. I was just, you know, as you were saying before, I was so impressed with the way people and dogs can cooperate and it's a beautiful thing to see humans and dogs just being on the same page and, and getting each other. Um, it's it's just so you know, exciting, the possibilities of that. And I do remember going up to Mount Borbor, not a particularly fit um, person, being a bit city-bound um, and making our way up these very, very steep paths climbing over logs that were chest high, these massive fallen trees and falling behind, you know, because the, the amphibian team are so fit and used to that environment. And one of the dogs, um, maybe being a, a herding dog, being a border collie, he was just staying behind and making sure that we, you know, kept as a group and making sure that he would wait for me while I was oh. catching up. <laughs> that was oh just gosh, adorable, you know, so looking up looking up the hill and thinking, hang on, I can't see anybody. Um, and then beautiful rubble, he would appear at the top oh. of the hill, ears up, just, you know, making sure, checking in that I was, that I was catching up. Oh, oh, rubble. That's so sweet. Um, yeah, that does yeah, sound, that sounds like a very, very border collie right. thing to do too. <laughs> I just love that dogs are such great team players as well. It's something that obviously we value in conservation when, when people can work together, that's when we make a difference. And then the fact that dogs just do that so naturally as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, they, they do tend to make pretty, pretty good co-workers. Um, yeah. So as we're wrapping up here, is there anything that we didn't talk about yet that you want to make sure gets across or anything you wanted to circle back to or expand on before we go? We're working on growing the program here at Zeus Victoria. Um, we have a facility um, with, with some really lovely kennels and exercise yards here at Hillsville Sanctuary, and we do have space for up to five dogs. Um, currently, we have six dogs in the program, um, and we're quite flexible in our model of where the dogs come from. It's more about um, whether they pass the assessment of having all the right qualities. Um, so a couple of those dogs do go home uh, with one of our wildlife detection dog officers. They are her companion dogs, um, but also being trained for the program. And then there is a, another dog that is um, the companion dog of a second one of our, our staff members as well. So we do have three dogs currently living in the detection dog hub here at Healesville Sanctuary. Um, and, you know, a lot of work goes into making sure those dogs are comfortable with that kenneled environment. Uh, they, a couple of them have come from rescue shelters and foster homes. And so it's just really about making sure that the dogs can transition really nicely into our program 
um, and they do have a really great life. They have the company of other dogs. They get a lot of exercise, a lot of stimulation, um, lots of play, really good food. I'm quite jealous of the um, the amount of effort that goes into <laughs> their food preparation. I wish someone was doing that for me at home. Um, so, yeah, just working with each individual dog and the challenges that they, they may present on their, their sort of learning um, in their learning process, um, and particularly if they have come from a, a background that had a lot of instability, um, they may have been surrendered. Um, we do have one dog that um, was was sourced from what we call a pound here, where um, he was just the family that had him couldn't deal with his energy levels, but he is just such a beautiful addition to our program, and he's a, he's a very happy dog now that he's got a job to do. Oh, yeah, we love to hear that. We've got uh, several dogs on our team that actually, three of our four conservation dogs here were were rescues that were all more or less the same story. They were a little bit too crazy for their people and, uh, you know, ended up at the shelter here. And, um, you know, now they're all very happy. My, uh, my older dog, Barley, is currently lying on my foot. Uh, and, um, oh my gosh, going back to the, uh, the diet that they get, I, I completed a short internship at the Cheyenne Mountain Zoo several years ago. And I just remember the first time I was learning to prepare the hippo diets that, um, I just remember thinking, wow, I, uh, I would really like someone to do this for me. And, uh, wow, these, uh, <laughs> these melons look really good. <laughs> like, I would love to hire a zookeeper or a zoo nutritionist as my personal chef. This seems like the way to go. Yeah, definitely very well looked after. Yeah, certainly. Um, yeah, it's uh, and honestly, a lot of a lot of even just uh, kind of dog people, especially kind of the capital D, capital P dog people of the universe, are also um, tend to be very highly dedicated to their dogs' food and nutrition. And I, I love that for all of our working dogs. Um, Thank you all so much for listening. And Chris, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We learned a lot from you. And I hope everyone at home is feeling inspired to get outside and be a canine conservationist in whatever way suits your passions and skill set. You can find show notes, transcript, donate to Canine Conservationists, and join our Patreon over at canineconservationists.org. Until next time.